Mommy told me something a little girl should know. It's all about the devil, and I've learned to hate him so. Hello, and welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing on special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of The Final Girls and your podcast host. More people are watching more movies than ever, and horror movies at that, which is silver lining, I guess, considering the trying times we're living through. And, you know, we're quarantined, lockdown, staying at home as much as humanly possible. And we really hope you're safe and sane out there. We'll keep going with the final girls. A lot of our real life plans are put on hold at the moment, but we're working on bringing some digital treats to you and we'll definitely keep the podcast going. In this episode, we're going to tackle a genuinely terrifying, quite creepy little film, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. It stars Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch as the father and son coroners who experience supernatural phenomena while examining the body of an unidentified woman, hence the name Jane Doe, who's played by newcomer Owen Kelly. The more they uncover about Jane Doe, the spookier things get. And I won't say more. I say this a lot on this podcast, but this is definitely, definitely one to watch with as little information as possible. Don't even watch the trailer. It's a wild ride. I'm joined in this episode by producer, presenter, and podcaster extraordinaire Louise Blaine, host of the Killed podcast and contributor to many others. We're recording all of our episodes remotely now for obvious reasons, so in bits the audio might be a bit iffy. We'll be spoiling the film pretty early on in the episode, so if you haven't seen it before, it's available on several streaming platforms out there, and I definitely recommend it. So if you're full of trouble and you never seem to win, just open up your heart and let the sun shine in. Louise, I'm so excited to do this with you. And this is actually the first conversation we've ever had. And it happens to be a podcast recording, which is yeah. very appropriate. It's amazing. I'm so excited to be here. So excited to be talking about this, of this movie especially. But you especially. I've been following you on Twitter and just been like, so cool. <laughs> Okay. It's all so cool. It's that it's that way when you you finally get to speak to someone that you've especially been listening to on on other places, and you're like, same. this is exciting. Very much same. Um, when you know, and we can fangirl now for a second. Might yes, keep, we this, can. This is cute. I might keep it. In. Um, when I heard you talk about with Becky and Mike on the Evolution of Horror podcast, um, when I heard you talk about the craft, I was like, oh my god, this woman knows her witch stuff. Oh, oh mm, I mean, I I know my craft stuff now, but that was such. It was a really, it's it's a really fun topic, isn't it? To totally yeah. dive into and take to bits. It can go in any direction as well, because that it was fun. Because that same when I was on the evolution of horror in that same day with Mike, I got to talk about the witches as well as the craft, and it was like talking about two entirely such different movies. But it it, oh, it just goes in every way, and obviously the the film we're talking about today goes in a completely different way again so it, it just it unfolds it's great yeah and you know we're gonna this is a an interesting film and I was really debating with myself uh whether to include it in the series or not uh for reasons that I'm sure we'll come to later but 
just to kick off the conversation a little bit, can you talk about what is your relationship to the autopsy of Jane Doe? I think I'd heard about it through word of mouth. People had said, you know, the autopsy of Jane Doe's a good movie. And I went through a period where I really liked to spend my Friday and Saturday nights watching a horror film somewhere off a streaming service because it's fun for you because you get to watch something that might be a bit rubbish but it also might be great. And if it's great, then you get to share it with everyone, which is kind of a double win. I really like doing that. And it means other people don't need to go through the terrible things that we as horror fans inevitably have to suffer, but kind of enjoy at the same time. So I had seen it passing. I ended up watching it at home. And, you know, from start to finish, it was just this wonderful surprise of a horror movie. And I think before we go into any sort of details on it, I think what I love so much about it is it's like one of those bottle episodes of TV. It's so self-contained and perfect and nothing goes unused. Everything from the start to the end is signposted beautifully, but not in a horrible way where it smacks you about the face and says, hey, we're Chekhov's gun, but in a nice, lovely, almost comforting horror movie way. And then it takes you in a completely different direction and you still ride with it. And it's really scary. Before we go into the detail of it, and I should add that this is entirely a spoilerific zone, so we're going to go into what happens um, in through the entire film. But did you expect it to be so good? Because on the surface, and without the word of mouth, potentially, it could look like just a trashy, cheaply made, horrible B-movie. Yeah, I mean, expectations-wise, anything called the autopsy of Jane Doe, and I think something on Amazon has called itself something similar, like the corpse of someone. I think people have immediately tried to copy it. But I think from the from that title, it doesn't really, I suppose, do itself any favours. But at the same time, that is what the movie is. It's very Ron Seal, and it does what it says on the tin. It is an autopsy, but it does that wonderful thing of what the people working with a body are then doing is solving a puzzle and the puzzle happens to be a horror film and that is an absolutely enticing hook that never really lets go it's such a surprising film isn't it i think first saw it at the london film festival at a daytime screening one of those you know oh i've got some time at 11 a.m on a tuesday oh i'll go see this it's in the cold section which is always great and zero expectations. It looked fun, but simple. And I remember being genuinely scared. Like I jumped a couple times and I was so surprised by, like you describe it in the sense it's perfectly compact and it almost worked for me as a really good episode of CSI. Yeah, that's it. And I can't believe you saw it in a cinema because seeing it in a cinema, it genuinely frightens me. When I, I mean, I watched it again last night I didn't turn my lights off because I was like, I'm just going to keep the lights low. I got I got Alexa to turn the lights to quite dim and we watched it together because we're in our current situation. And um, I was genuinely afraid again. That that bell, which we will go, <laughs> I imagine we're going to talk to about that bell, that really bothers me. If someone just walked past ringing a bell, like just casually, like it's not a Christmas bell. It's a horrible bell that sits on a corpse's toe. <laughs> so shall we talk a little bit about what, makes this film so scary yes you mentioned the bell already but let's go into the bell so the bell is introduced very early on because obviously we get to know these characters we get to know um, Emil Hirsch and, and Brian Cox's characters and 
I think it's actually a really interesting introduction to them where obviously Mel Hirsch's girlfriends come in and she's like, oh, let me see the let me see the horrible stuff. And what's interesting is that she's kind of us. She's you and me. She is what would happen if we had someone who has had that. We're like, oh, but can you just show me? Can you can you just show me what you do? And you don't know how you'll feel about it, but you do want to check. So the bell comes in when she says, "Hey, show me the corpse," and they wheel out one of the three trays, the three march, the three uh, storage trays, and one of them has a bell on the toe of a corpse. Um, and you you learn a little story of making sure that they're dead, which also kind of ties in with that kind of the amazing thing that I know they used to do in sort of Victorian times of the bell that used to stretch up from the coffin and up into the graveyard. Are these all people? Just three tonight. Can I see one? What? No, no, you cannot see one. Why not? Because there's some things you can't unsee. Come on, I can handle it. No, no. And my dad, he's way too strict. Try me. So, what'll it be? Oh, are you serious? Are you? Hell yeah. Pick one. Body's a body. Yeah, but I picked that one. What's that for? Make sure he's dead. There used to be a time it was hard to tell a comatose person from a dead one. So coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. So why do you have one? Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. So while it has the association of a bell that we hear later that we saw earlier being on a corpse's toe, it also has echoes of the past. It has echoes of the the historical idea and the fear of being buried alive. So while on one sense you're you're just aware that a corpse has come back, it also it kind of engages all these deep fears that we have of being buried and and, and having to escape. So it, it works on every level. Absolutely. And then it also becomes a very simple narrative tool where very, very low cost, this very innocuous sound that suddenly becomes a threatening sound because you know that in the context of the film, if you hear that little bell ringing, a corpse that should be a corpse potentially might not actually be dead or might be undead, which is that kind of interplay between is this a zombie movie? Is this a supernatural movie? Is this a crime thriller? Is she buried alive? Is she in a coma? Like what's, what's going on here? And that unknown entity that might be going around and the film shifts between identities so much throughout its very, very slim running time as well. I think this film is like under 90 minutes long. Yeah. And it's so effective. 
I think it it's that um the fact that it's the fact that it's so short and the fact that it it is it is an autopsy of of someone. I think what you're saying about the different um the genres that it crosses, I almost wish that it didn't have that title and it didn't have that art because it would mean that more people would watch it because while it is really gruey to start with, I mean, it's gruesome. A Y incision is not hidden, you know, but at the same time, um, it is no, it's not people who watch CSI, for example, or a silent witness or any of these things. They're not a stranger to that. And this is just, just an added, just a little extra push into horror. And it also has this almost, like you mentioned before, it taps into our voyeuristic approach to watching horror, almost to watching gore as well, potentially watching these gruesome scenes, because it is in this almost very functional, very respectable place, a mortuary, and they're doing a service, they're doing a professional service, they're doing it well. You know, those those two characters, the mortician, uh, played by Brian Cox, and his son, who's sort of his apprentice, they're very sensible, empathetic people. They're not at all villainous or Machiavellian. They're there to do their job. But it's still a place very much like Emil Hirsch's girlfriend kind of really uh, says. It's like a place where you don't really want to be too much, but you really want to look inside. Yeah, You want to see what... how they work. What's That's their daily it. routine? Where do they eat lunch? That's what I want to know. Where do, where do they eat lunch? But you, it was funny that you saying that they are, you saying that they're really good. And I, I think it's the current climate. But did you notice how long Brian Cox washed his hands for? Because I did. Did you count? It didn't quite count, but he was still doing it after the first happy birthday that I got through. So he did pretty well. He was doing pretty well with the correct washing hands technique, which just to support that they are doing they are doing the correct job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, for for anybody um, who's self isolating like we are now, you know, just think of the autopsy of Jane Doe when you're washing your hands. Yeah, these be, things are important. Be more like Brian Cox, which is what I tell myself every day, really. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the 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 um, I like the fact that they're doing their job. They are doing. I think that's part of it as well, and it normalizes it because what we have in horror is corpses are scary, corpses are bad, corpses are dead things, and those are all of they're all true. But when you lay them out on a slab like like our Jane Doe in the middle there, everyone's equal. Everyone gets weighed and sliced and photographed and logged in a proper way. And what did you think then about those lead characters, the dynamic between them? It The first, I want to say third of the film is really spent establishing their relationship. So Tommy, who's the who's Brian Cox, and Austin, who, who's his son. There's a little bit of a tension there. Uh, you know, from the get-go, I really like their relationship simply because it didn't feel like it was perfect. It didn't feel like it was perfect. They felt like there was a bit of tension. You know, there was the, he obviously, Tommy was saying, no, look harder, find out why this person died. You're not fitting the puzzle pieces right. And there was, there was the father-son teaching and learning dynamic, which I really enjoyed. And you thought that maybe he'd be irritated with his father and he's going out on his date. But then when a body is wheeled in, he can't leave his dad. He feels this sense of ownership. You find out that he's been threatening 
you know, saying that he'll leave for two years and he hasn't. And it's because of this relationship he has with his dad. And I think it does a really, it, it, it does it quite subtly in a way that, yes, I understand what's happening. I understand that you're being quite obvious about their relationship, but I don't feel like I'm being hit on the head with it. You know, I feel, I feel like I'm learning in a natural way. And I think, again, that's what that, that short runtime is incredible for, because you feel like by the time you get to that horrific third act, you you've gone through it with them and you've learned enough to know why it's so sad it's really strange to talk about her as a character but let's talk about jane doe who is in the title gets a lot of screen time is naked and unmoving for the entire film and that i find just i find so interesting and i'd love to hear what you think about her well, I was actually, I was thinking, what you're saying about her being, she is the most important character. She's also the most powerful. <laughs> she is, the, she has the upper hand in every capacity over these people. And I think from the get-go, she is, I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that despite the fact that she is naked, at no point do I ever feel like it's sexually offensive. I don't feel like it's I don't feel like it's nasty or grim simply because I think they made a really concerted effort to have the person that was being dissected previously was a man who was also naked. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very, everyone is equal on that slab and no one's looking at, no one is, her, her skin is very pale and beautiful and absolutely blemish free. She is beautiful, but I never feel like she's objectified or sexualized while lying there. And even when they are, going in and the Y incision is really horrible but even when they are going in she still has power she still holds it despite the fact they're unraveling this basically it kind of reminds me did you ever play any of the room games no the room games they have them they're made of little boxes and you interact with them in different ways and you find ways to get inside and you look at different things and she's kind of this human equivalent of this room puzzle which lots of people play on mobile i played it on mobile but she's this powerful box she's kind of like hellraiser's box she's something powerful and solid and there and i I do find her completely fascinating i completely agree with you that it doesn't feel sexualized at all it doesn't feel voyeuristic and part of it is the fact that she is she's she's made up like a corpse this is not you know just a naked woman on a slab made to look attractive but I think the other part for me was also in Tommy and Austin's character particularly in Tommy the way that they were approaching her as they uncovered and peeled away some of the mysteries about her. So as they opened her up, essentially, and discovered all the terrible mutilations that she had been subjected to, there's such a sense of empathy of them seeing her much more as a person who had suffered a great deal and made that sense of responsibility, of professional responsibility to understand what had happened to her to help solve her death, her murder. We, they don't really know what it is, but they increasingly throughout the, the film, I think, get the sense of, we must find out what happened in order to set it right, or at least to put a name on it. I appreciated that from their end as well, but kind of going a little bit deeper into the power side of it, I also find that quite an intriguing narrative mechanism because she is unmoving and speaking uh 
technically in a very vulnerable position, but always wielding the power. Although we don't really know that until about two thirds of the movie in. What did you think about the way that the mystery of Jane Doe was unfolded? I think this is what one of the things I love so much about it is because they are just doing their job and and they find out what has happened to her just by doing their job. So they find out what's happened to her lungs. And actually, my entire, my favourite thing that I find really scary was when they discovered that she was skin within skin. The sort of double layered moment was really hot because something that looks so perfect from the outside and I think the early thing was when they said that her frame didn't look like it fit her waist there was this unnatural unnatural moment about her and they'd already seen that from the outside and that's not necessarily something that we'd see so them even mentioning it was suddenly like oh something's wrong not just the fact that she was found in a house where horrible things had happened and I will say just now I would watch that movie let me see (laughs) that movie let me see the movie that led up to the movie to the to the the scene at the start i would absolutely watch that prequel oh totally i would watch the prequel the sequel the back in time prequel to it totally give me a ginger snaps three type prequel where we go way back in time when she's alive and when they try and get rid of her by putting her in space that would obviously be one like when they've decided we're finally like finally like at the fifth Jane Doe and and humanity's like we can't do this we're gonna have to send her to space then it would be like space where no one can hear you get away from Jane Doe I mean (laughs) I want a crossover with Jane Doe and Sabrina I want the whole lot yep all the the sequels (laughs) because obviously there's no action in how we unfold Jane's mystery so one of the things that really struck me was actually the the language the the way that they described the mystery of Jane and the things that they learn about her as they perform the autopsy. So kind of what did you make about this quite graphic, quite clinical descriptions of the sort of torture that people and especially women accused of witchcraft would have been subjected to? I think that's a really interesting point. Um, when I think, again, the placement of it in a non-emotional landscape really makes a massive difference because it's left to you to infer. And we do infer. I, I don't think you can help the fact of when when he's very, very clear and Tommy's drawing out on a blackboard, very obviously. I love the fact the way that's structured is the, the close-ups of him drawing the chalk, the lines, the arms, the legs, and suddenly that's that's very evocative. Sure, it's a blackboard, but we are learning about the most intense form of suffering via a blackboard so while there isn't direct action on screen by its very nature we are imagining something far worse it's doing the best thing that horror movies do isn't it but giving you a dark room and making you imagine what's in the corner and what you imagine is in the corner is so much worse than what could ever be shown you know so I think I think that's exactly why it's so evocative and so effective because we don't really leave that room we don't leave their underground home but in our minds we re- we really do we mentioned before, but this film is not really marketed or positioned or looks like a witch film on the surface. It's very much one of those, what I like to call the secret witch film, yes. where <laughs> it's like it doesn't look a cult themed on the surface, doesn't look supernatural, doesn't look witchy. And then boom, you find out that the whole point of the film is that there's some witchy business going on. I think Hereditary is one of them as well. Kind of, How do you think this fits into our idea of witch films into what I've been calling after almost 20 episodes of this podcast, the witch canon. 
The witch cannon. Oh, wow. The witch cannon. You know, the mental image that I have for a witch cannon is a cannon that's firing out, like, <laughs> you know, the, the, from the witch from, is it Meg and Mog? Yeah, definitely. That's a cannon firing that. I think um, oh, where this, I think what's particularly interesting about the way that Autopsy of Jane Doe covers witchcraft is the idea that it's not someone that willfully became a witch, that willfully took power. You know, where we see a lot of witch films is someone that has either been potentially born into being into having supernatural arts or having trained in order to be the power that they have or suddenly invoking and realizing who they are inside, um, walking out, you know, naked into the, the clearing in the witch. I'm really thinking about that taking of power. That's not the case here. Jane Doe was made this. Jane Doe was an innocent woman who was put through horrific torture and turned into a monster who then took revenge on what humanity had done to her. And I think that's the big switcheroo. That's the big change. You feel suddenly, and I think, interestingly, I think Tommy, the the performance from Brian Cox, I'm hitting the microphone, the, the performance from Brian Cox, he is completely empathetic to the discovery that This is what humans did to her. This is what happened to her. We made her this way. She is taking her revenge. And I think he understood. I think he got it. I think uh, uh, instead of being, no, we must fight the monster, which his son is very like, oh, there must be a way to stop it, which is the traditional horror movie third act of how do we stop the attacking thing. Tommy's very different in the fact that he, he realizes that she, this isn't her fault this is just who she has become and what she has become and that just happens to be something that is is angry understandably that's so on point and there's a lovely sort of monologue from brian cox in the film as well where he talks about the nature of rituals the ritual of even subjecting her to that torture and the fact that it backfired and transformed her into this monster this witch and that she was then reenacting the ritual against them because they, well, they're the ones that she's now in contact with. So her revenge knows no bounds. She's just going to torture whoever she comes into, into contact with next. Fitz. Which is our myth. You can't keep denying. There were no witches in Salem. There were kids, young girls, falsely accused, wrapped up in hysteria, one pointing to the next, who pointed to the next. But they were all, all innocent. Only, they didn't hang her or burn her at the stake. They tortured her. Mercilessly. The ritual didn't work. Formed on an innocent, accidentally created the very thing they were trying to destroy. Everything they did to her, everything we've done to her, she can feel it. 
wants us to feel it. This is our revenge. This is our ritual. I loved, I loved his, the ideas that he wrote, that he raised up around rituals and the meaning of those. And I wonder what you thought of that, because it seemed almost to be implied that it was a compulsive thing. That even both in the persecution of witches, you know, when Salem was brought up and um, as the most recognizable, you know, association for witch trials in the world. But he seemed to to be implying in that monologue, I think, that there's an element of just madness to those rituals. Like they're compulsive. They're not really thought thoughtful. Which sort of goes in contradiction with the idea of spells or of witches performing something that's quite deliberate, quite specific, that has repercussions. Yeah. And, you know, that whole idea of whatever you put out into the world as a spell or a ritual or an invocation will come back to you threefold or whatnot. Um, so what did you make about some of the the larger ideas around rituals and witchcraft that kind of rise up from this? I think the ritualistic um aspect of it I hadn't I haven't thought exactly about it in the in the wider sense but I completely I completely agree with you the fact of um the power of directed spells is particularly interesting but I do think that despite the fact that she's this almost she's not animalistic but it's the explanation it's the explanation that you would use for saying maybe a shark went to a beach no one would say it was the shark's no one would say that is an evil shark. It just happens to be a shark that has reached a beach and is eating, you know, and if someone lost their life, that would be horrific. But it also no one says that is a villainous shark because it's nature. And I think that's the important thing. They have, she is a force of nature. She is a force of supernatural nature, but she's still a force of nature. And I think the idea that whenever she does anything particular, maybe she uh turns up the cremation furnace and the smoke happens whenever whenever the little things like that happen we are taken back to that quite reassuring almost top-down shot of her which never really which i find every time it goes back to her i'm always looking for movement and we've not talked about the performance of the of the actress but i'm constantly looking for movement but at the same time it's almost smart you're looking at her and this is what she is doing she is purposefully doing those things those things are happening she is um she is bringing out the the guy with the bell on his foot she is standing in the shower she's all of those things while simultaneously lying on that slab so i think that while she is a force we we come to believe that one at a time one little bit at a time one little jenga block at a time she's pulling them out and and it's very precise what do you think about her powers? Yeah, she's godlike. She's literally a goddess. She can do everything. She can bring back the dead. She can cause hallucinations. I think um, what's especially interesting is that moment where the the bellman, and it's finally got into the sort of state of complete panic where he's staggering down that corridor and we're all feeling, oh gosh, this is terrifying because it's finally ramped up to this moment. But the fact that it then was his girlfriend and, you know, she can cause total hallucinations which is 
hugely powerful. I mean, terrifyingly powerful. And and you'd kind of hope that it would just be in that small environment, but you but you don't know how far it can reach. You don't know how many radios she's going to twist to that particular song. I love the analogy of the radio twisting to a particular song because that's what she does. There's this song that keeps coming up mm-hmm. and becomes increasingly creepy because you know that once it comes on, she's going to do something. Yeah. And and it's interesting because at the start of the movie, when they're, it's kind of a, a sort of a father-son montage of this is what we do, which is sewing up bodies and all the rest of it, while they're listening to the radio. And that that normalizes it as well. That really sets the tone for this is just all in a day's work. So what's really interesting is that the twisting of that to suddenly she even has the power over the music as well. She she takes all of the control. No, no longer are you just doing your job while splatting stuff into bowls and all the rest of it, which is still what they do. She's taking control of all of it. All of it is hers. Everything of the rest of that movie belongs to Jane Doe. So let's talk about the performance then. Um, so Jane Doe is played by Alwyn Kelly, who I'd never seen before in a film. What did you make of her? Oh, I, I, I think it's so obvious the fact that it is a real person, not a prosthetic. I think that's really, really important. And obviously, they had to change things for getting in various places. But I think the fact that she is a real person with real eyes, and I, it's interesting because. Initially, when you watch something like that, you think, I'm going to make sure you're not breathing. That's the test I'm going to have for you. I'm going to watch to make sure you're not breathing. I'm going to watch to make sure you don't see that heartbeat in the in the, in the the neck. But what I found even more impressive was knowing that it was her most of the time. I love the fact that she said she practiced yoga and various things in order to receive, like, get into a sort of meditative state that being a corpse required. You'd never say that a performance of a corpse is a big deal. Like, you know, you kind of just, you throw the the saw corpse as just like, well, that's obviously been a fake thing all the way through. But she is real and she's the most human uh, evocative corpse of, that's the strangest thing to say, but it's all, it also feels true. <laughs> I mean, with that amount of screen time, she probably has more screen time than any other corpse. Except maybe Laura Palmer. Yeah. We should definitely combine to create the power of some kind of list of corpses with the most screen time in movies. I mean, there is that trope, and there's actually a really good video essay about this, about the idea that any kind of thriller or crime story or a lot of horror films all start with a dead girl's corpse. Yes, everybody dies first. Yeah. Yeah. But it's usually kind of, you know, uh, a the dead body of a young woman, especially usually is the inciting incident that then generates the, the story or the film yeah. or the series or whatnot. Yeah. But in this case, she's both the, the object and the villain and the victim and our protagonist and the name of the film as well. And like you, I just kept watching and waiting for her to move. And as increasingly as the um, the tone of the film also shifted to being a supernatural film, as we found out more about her, I was so sure, even on second watch, even on third watch, when I watched it uh, last night, I was thinking, surely she's going to move and wake up and just get up, get up and get out of here and go along her merry way and be a super powerful mega witch. I think I wanted that to be the case at the end. That's what I wanted. And I think it kind of broke my heart a little bit that by the time they got in there, her eyes were back to that weird cloudy way and she was wheeled into the car. And in the car, she 
the bell, you know, she twitched and you can either read that as the whole cycle will happen again or she's free and I don't think she's free. I don't think she's ever going to be free. I think that was the sad thing that I looked at her eyes and I just thought, nope, nope, she's she's still in there and she's perfect again. All her scars went because you thought that all her scars went because she'd, he'd sacrificed himself. But no, I, I think her scars went so that the cycle would happen again and she's kind of doomed to this, be this forever, forever force of evil that she can't really control or can control but can't be free she's an interesting update to the idea of a vengeful witch because there's so many examples of that you know even everything from like hocus pocus where they come back from the dead and they want to take revenge on a town and eat all the kids or uh black sunday where she also comes back from the dead to avenge uh the people who burned her at the stake and tortured her but this one is so different. How do you think she updates that trope? I think I think she updates it in this in this in the saddest way. And I also think potentially maybe the most twenty first century way where we are. I feel like it's a very. I like the idea of the camera being set up in the room, and I don't know why I liked that so much of it all being filmed and it all being documented, and it was almost a sort of horror film within a film that way where I just feel desperately sad for her and terrified of her all at once. And I think that, I suppose, is is a modern pushing forward of witchcraft in a different direction from what we had before. I don't know where it can go after that, other than, obviously, Autopsy of Jane Doe in space, as we so wish. But, you know, like, I do think going back to just, hey, I'm angry because you killed me, after that would be very very difficult you'd have to do it in a very particular way because it's it's postmodern witchery so to speak of of we're taking revenge in a different way and and that's i guess one of the many reasons that it's brilliant so you're absolutely right i love the postmodern witch take um i love also the idea that there is no ending like it almost is quite a, an interesting meditation of on revenge and revenge films in general. Usually there is, you know, this cathartic moment of she kills the people who wronged her or tortured her. But in this case, well, she's killing people who had nothing to do with it and she's not going to stop. But it's that element of no, her anger is against everyone. Doesn't matter yes. who they are. Uh, it's against the whole world. And I love that moment where Tommy uses the, the first person. He's like, no, we did this to her. And he's not talking about, you know, himself or his son. It's a more general kind of we as a society, we as men, we as people did this to other innocent people. And I get it. And maybe I'm not personally responsible, but I'm going to take the I'm going to take the suffering and take the revenge because to a degree we deserve it in a way and I thought that was quite provocative in a sense because we're asked to feel sad and empathize for this for this witch who's taking revenge on people who did not wrong her I think he feels Tommy feels like he has wronged in his life and the fact that they have that incredible discussion um, when they're in the lift and they talk about um, his wife and, and the, the mother, who obviously, despite the fact that he called her Ray of Sunshine, is suggested that she she was she was depressed and took her own life was this was the suggestion that he never he never saw her pain. 
And I think for him to then recognise not just the physical pain of someone else, which is almost easier because it has that scientific backing of his job, that's the easy thing for him, isn't it, is, is seeing direct causation and the fact that he couldn't see into her mind to see that she was she was suffering and in pain, if not outwardly, for him to recognise the idea that someone was causing pain because someone had wronged them. It was facing his own demons in the shape of a real demon, so to speak, you know? And I think I think that's why we really really suffer with him that way because he's almost learned his lesson and his final sacrifice trying to save his son is for love because he's already seen someone else suffer when he didn't do the right thing or what he felt wasn't the right thing and for him then to say hey take me instead and just happily not happily endure but opt into that it's really emotional and I feel like he's he's a really empathetic character and especially one that you wouldn't expect to see in this kind of movie. That's beautifully put. <laughs> Let's see what half a gin does. <laughs> <laughs> Just to start wrapping up a little bit, did, what did you make of the of the double ending? I'd forgotten that this film had kind of two endings to it. Because in a way for me, it sort of ended once she'd murdered everyone mm-hmm. in the mortuary. But then I forgot that, that that's extra bit where she's taken out by the police and they discover all the crimes and they're trying to figure out what happened they obviously won't and we see the the beginning of a new cycle i actually um i really liked that in my own head i would have preferred to have the conclusion that she was now released you know that would that's the mentally that would be the thing that i would like because i think i don't know if you're the same but i i always find that we watch horror films but they always have surprisingly happy endings they always yeah. reach they really do they reach um i think especially in, in times like just now i think i really can suggest to people to watch horror films potentially not in zombie infected movies but different horror films to experience um i think it was i was watching in Eli roth's history of horror i think it was joe hill that said horror is an exercise in extreme empathy and i really feel that i really feel that it is that we go through things with characters and we feel this catharsis uh, when we finish a horror film so i had I had I would have reached my catharsis within the within the movie had it finished there. But at the same time, I especially enjoyed the fact that the police chief who we'd seen at the start walking around the crime scene and going, Oh, it's a bit weird. I liked the fact that he said, Get this body out of my county. Because he understood. He understood that she was something else. What the hell happened here? What do you want to do with her? Get her out of here. Why do you got a car waiting? There's that uh, funeral home over on Roxton. Get her out of my county. Take her over to VCU. That board will mind deal with her. He didn't want her in his. He didn't even want her in the state anymore. He wanted her gone. And I think that was almost like a little, yeah, he knows something's off. And I think that's a great big horror tick. Rather than people going, oh, everything's fine here. I'll definitely go down this dark corridor. He was not that character. And it was worth it for his reaction. I love it. You're so right. I'd completely... <laughs> I'm just laughing to myself because I'm sort of remembering that moment. And you're so right. He so in- instinctively knows that there's something off, but he doesn't even want to investigate. 
it's sort of it's such a deceptively simple movie on the surface but then there's so many different elements to it isn't there um is there anything we haven't spoken about that you wanted to talk to that you wanted to talk about the film I think we have covered everything, but I'm going to double check my not psychopathically written notes. My <laughs> my happily <laughs> perfectly like cursive notes that in no way resemble the notebooks from Seven. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have things like I do have notes on my phone like that Y incision though. I mean, I just I just wrote that. I just I just wrote that in my phone. Um, and then with no explanation, some things you can't unsee. I mean, I, I'm sure that was really important to me at the time. Um, but I did say he washed his oh, hands. Oh yeah, that okay. was that was about the that was um <laughs> that was his. That's what he said to that her. That was Tommy to the girlfriend who yep. is us, really. Yes, that's because it. Yes. if there's any character that I empathize with, and I'm not sure if you're the same, I have the inkling that you might be. If there's any character in the film that I empathize with the most, is the girlfriend because I would 100% a date someone who worked in a mortuary mm-hmm. just totally. to go. Yes. Yep. And be one hundred percent asked to see the corpses. Yes. Just the ones though, because after that, no, absolutely not. Yeah. No. Um, but I think, yeah, I think one thing I will say is because it's in such an enclosed environment, because it's like that bottle episode, what I especially enjoy is the little moments like the the sort of extreme close ups of I think there was a fly at one point, the fly that came out of her nose flew into the flycatcher and died and it was like such a sizzle and that was such a good example of everything in that movie being there for a reason every sound every shot nothing felt there was just enough of the sort of um almost the minimalist shots of them being far away and doing their job but then there was the the little close-ups that really hit home every time so every sound every every extreme close-up they all mattered and i think that wraps it all up to say again they were suggesting the sort of here's the bell here's the horrible caved in face here's this oh the, the horrible stitches that keep that that the mouth closed they were all very carefully shot i found found to say you might see these things later but not in a in a horrible way just in a look how horrible this look how horrible it is when it comes back so yeah that's my one extra thing is just the cinematography and style there is very on the nose Oh yeah, I think this is this is a really good film for filmmakers to watch actually just in terms of it's a very like, idea rich premise I think but very very simple on the surface. Totally. Yeah. So compact, so um you know, one location, very very small amount of actors, very small amount of effects really a lot of it is just crafty storytelling, really good sound design and intense attention to details without kind of going overboard or building too much or presenting ideas or questions or even little wings that then are never answered like everything has a place like you said yeah i think that that's kind of a it's something that i found when i watched saint maud because rose glass had made shorts before and this was her first feature film and it's not obviously this director's first feature but it it's compact enough that it could be a short, you know, nothing is, there's no waste. And I think that's, that's exactly what this is of, Hey, you're going to watch something for an hour and 26 minutes and you're not going to blink just as if you'd watched it, if it was in nine minutes. And that's, I guess the the best review you could have of something, right? You, you forgot to eat or do anything in the middle. I mean, 
I feel now like that's a wasted tagline for the autopsy of Jane Doe. 86 minutes without blinking. Yes. Oh, that they can take that. That's a quotable. <laughs> the re-release. Yeah. For, you know, prior to all the sequels that we've pitched. So. <laughs> yes. So we've got Jane Doe in space. We've got uh, the origins of Jane Doe. Um, and we've got another sequel in another yep. state. Oh, and then Jane Doe in Europe. Yeah, of course, on tour. Euro trip. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Louise, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Um, Honestly, thank you for having me. No, it's a pleasure. And I hope we can do this again. Me too. Where can people find out more of your work? Um, you can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon. And you can also find me on my podcast which is Kilt, which is K-I-L-L-T. Otherwise, you'll find more tartan than you were bargaining for, but it is a true crime podcast. And it's only had one episode so far with episode two coming. So please check that out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of the Final Girls podcast. Please do rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirlsuk. Let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving us a review. It really helps, and we just want to know what you're enjoying. You can also get in touch with us on hello at thefinalgirls.co.uk. You can follow Louise on Twitter at shiny underscore demon and I am on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more witchy goodness next week. And Browner's never win, so let the sun shine in. Face it with a grin. Open up your heart and let